And now, words of wisdom from the ODB. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Shit happens, man. You know what I mean? Just sometimes it be happening to the wrong cats, man. You know what I mean? Hello, this is Michael Taylor bringing you a dash of cold water economics for the week ending the 27th of December. It's the holiday period, so there's been very little data this week. So I thought I'd take the opportunity to look back at 2019 as a whole. And from my viewpoint, where I just keep tracking the uh, 500 pieces of economic data every month, to me, 2019 was a year of funk, lies, and displacement activity. Uh, sorry to be a bit aggressive about it, but that's how it seemed to me. Let's start with funk. Part of what I do when I look at economic data is I separate out... Um, confidence data from the sort of hard industrial trade and domestic demand data. And using these, I construct what I call a funk index, which tracks the degree to which movements in confidence indicators are justified or not by movements in the hard data. So when confidence is sinking below what is justified by the hard data, regardless of whether the hard data is positive or negative, I interpret that difference as a degree of funk. And in that particular sense, 2019 saw the deepest and most sustained divorce between reality and fear that we've seen in recent years. It's not entirely news. Essentially, the world has been in an economic funk, with few exceptions, since about March 2018, and has only really come out of it in the last couple of months of uh, 2019. Still, within this period of general funk, the deep funk climax, the P-funk, if you like, uh, came this year and lasted from July 2019 to late October. Now, we get to start to have to start thinking about the lies. What lay behind this deep funk? What was driving it? Why were people so much more depressed about the world than was actually justified when you looked at the data? Well, there are some popular explanations which, were I feeling charitable, which I ought to be at this time of the year, I would say were simply failures of imagination or maybe knowledge. In particular, throughout the year, every time there was a kind of a downturn in the funk index, um, that wasn't being caused by the data, the explanation by reflex was attributed to the problems uh, surrounding the US-China relationship, and in particular, the stresses put on it by uh, President Trump. Although I have to say, Brexit was also pressed into uh, into service as, as an explanation as well. But this Trump-centered single-factor explanation is many because if you can identify a single exogenous anomalous factor like the U.S.-China problems, then it allows the belief that everything will be okay if it just weren't for Mr. Trump. And it allows that to go unchallenged without thought. And it absolutely should be challenged. Because the startling fact is that as far as either Northeast Asian exports are concerned or imports from the developed world are concerned, 2019 was actually not a year, was not a year when trade patterns deteriorated markedly or dramatically or even at all from the sort of underlying trends that we can identify. 
Uh, if you take a look at Northeast Asia's exports, for example, so that's China, Japan, Korea, and Taiwan, the big kind of industrial muscle of Northeast Asia, um, it's very clear that Northeast Asia's export momentum was not massively disrupted by the Chinese disputes. Although Northeast Asia's exports fell 3.1% during um, the year to November, the average monthly deflection from the seasonalized trend, which I looked for over five years, was exactly 0.0 standard deviations. In other words, the health of Northeast Asia's exports is cleaving absolutely to established trend. Whatever is the problem with Northeast Asia's exports, it cannot therefore, it cannot therefore be US-China disputes. Because the problem isn't the anomalous blip, the problem is the underlying trend itself. And this is where I think we have to sort of be pretty tough and say, look, just you've got to stop lying about this idea that this is really just to do with China and Trump. So the question we should be asking is, what's killing the trend? And to me, the most obvious answer is that the world's trade lawyers are waging a quiet but absolutely unremitting and largely successful war against world trade by writing endless, an endless proliferating jungle of non-tariff barriers. Uh, let's look at this. Uh, I, I track them using the WTO database, and in November 2018, the US, EU, Japan, and China had between them 12,514 non-tariff barriers. By November 19, 2019, there were 13,194, up 5.4%. If you look at non-tariff barriers per billion dollar of imports made by these economies, in October 2018, it was 1.58. By October 2019, it had risen to 1.71 billion, or 1.71 non-tariff barriers per billion dollars of imports. The rise has been absolutely relentless. And I suspect that, um, you know, the forces that are organizing the death of world trade are basically acting on autopilot and certainly well out of the way of direct political scrutiny. There are two other factors that we ought to think about. Um, the first is the possibly negative impact that China's scarier political environment is having on the economy. Now, you know, we're not naive, and uh, international investors and traders have long been familiar with the idea of the anaconda in the chandelier aspect of doing business in China. The idea is you go into the ballroom, everyone's having a good time, the place is glittering, it looks good, but you don't look up because up there in the chandelier, there's an anaconda which just might drop on someone's neck at some point. Now, since Deng Xiaoping's southern tour of 1992, that anaconda has pretty much, generally speaking, kept itself to itself. It's only rarely dropped from the chandelier onto the neck of some unsuspecting bypasser. But it hasn't gone away. And this, these days, under Xi Jinping, it's looking a little bit more interested, maybe a little tougher, a little hungrier, less the sort of thing you can be absolutely sure is going to stay up there. So maybe some people are skipping the party and saying, okay, maybe not China this year. Maybe not China this year. Let's see if how things pan out. The third factor, of course, is simply 
the fact that there may be, may be frailties in the world economy that are owing to the policies that were put in place um, post-crisis. And here I'm talking about monetary policy. True, it seems theoretically and empirically highly likely that zero interest rate policies and uh, massive central bank balance sheet expansion has contributed to widening wealth inequalities. It also seems theoretically and empirically very likely that zero interest rate policies will result in an increasing population of corporate zombies, which destroy margins, prevent productive redeployment of capital and labor, and so cripple productivity gains in the long term. There's nothing new about these observations. Indeed, they're hardly even controversial anymore, but um, they're also rarely uh, put forward as reasons why there are problems in the world economy. And once again, I think that uh, that unwillingness to confront uh, um, these possible problems is part of what I would call the record of lies during 2019. We've had the funk, we've had the lies. Now let's look at displacement activity. And when I'm thinking about displacement activity, I'm really thinking about what central banks in developed world has been doing in the last few months. In other words, if you look at the response to the 2019's grand funk, the central banks in the US and EU have just doubled down on their post-crisis policies. They've cut interest rates and started bloating up their balance sheets once again. Now, my funk index really plunged into its deepest abyss in July. And by the end of that month, the US Federal Reserve responded straight off, cutting Fed funds target by 25 basis points and announcing that it was going to stop the very modest rundown in its balance sheet that, that had been ongoing for the previous couple of years. There were further 25 basis points cuts made in September and October. And in addition, in October, the Fed committed to, quote, maintaining ample reserve balances within the banking system, uh, including via the repo markets. And if you look at the impact of this, from early 2018 to August 2019, the Federal Reserve had been gradually shrinking its balance sheet, which in part actually offset the widening fiscal deficit because you know a, a federal government deficit puts net cash back into the hands of the private sector. The Fed, uh, shrinking its balance sheet, then takes that extra cash back. All that's changed in the uh, last few months of 2019. The fiscal deficit is continuing to grow, but at the same time, the Federal Reserve's also got back into the business of reflating the financial system. And the combination of these two, the Fed uh, deficit still growing and the Federal Reserve still pumping money in, means that the combined net impact of private cash flows of both federal government and Federal Reserve policies went from a net positive of about $486 billion in the 12 months to August to a net positive of $960 billion in the 12 months to November. And uh, if you sort of chart that, you have a genuine hockey stick spike up, basically, in the last few months of 2019. It is actually a quite dramatic, coordinated reflation. And, of course, the Fed has not been alone in doubling down. 
Uh, in its September policy meet, the European Central Bank decided its already negative interest rates could be usefully made even more negative when they cut their deposit rate by 10 basis points to minus half a percent and announced it was going to restart its asset purchasing program, 20 billion, dollar, 20 billion euros, excuse me, a month from November. And as with the Fed, uh, ECB's change in policy is already showing in its balance sheet. If you look at the net lending that ECB makes into the Eurozone banking system, that rose from 113 billion euros at the beginning of September to 435 billion uh, by late November. Again, we have another hockey stick. Now, this combined recommitment to monetary stimulus on both sides of the Atlantic, to me, is displacement activity. It's been it's displacement activity because they're not addressing the things that need to be addressed if um, economic vigor is to be recovered. It has, however, been spectacularly successful in dealing with the grand funk of 2019. Right now, my funk index at the end of 2019 is at its highest level, its most positive level, since 2017, and uh, the strength of developed world equity markets is both a cause and expression of it. Nothing's changed, but the funk has been dealt with. Well, maybe th 2020 will be different. Maybe central bankers won't feel so urgently the need to prop up equity markets. Maybe politicians and policymakers will find this a way to stop the lawfare being waged against world trade. Maybe some countries at least will try to discover ways to transcend the shortcomings of the post-2008-2009 policy set. And I have to say, uh, the chances of that are as good in the UK as anywhere else. Well, let's hope so. Uh, if we could, it would indeed make a happy new year. Thanks for listening. Bye.